Let us turn now to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of God. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, and the Gergesites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods, so will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repayeth them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. As far as the reading of God's precious covenantal word. Dear church family, this past Tuesday evening was amazing. It was a sweet night for this congregation, and for many friends, some 600 people gathered at our school to 
have it dedicated to the Most High God. Grace Christian Academy. As we stood there, we all had many thoughts, I'm sure. One of my thoughts was, Thou hast brought us through fire and water into a wealthy place. And many of us, I'm sure, fought back tears as we saw those 200 children going grade by grade into the classroom. It was an amazing, amazing night. Our thoughts were multiplied. What a summer it's been for all those who worked hard to bring that night to pass so that our children could go back to school. Already last Thursday, God has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. And so we look to our covenant-keeping God now to go before us, to use this new school, GCA, to teach our children, our teenagers, abiding, eternal, spiritual truths. Truths that will help them also develop skills for life. Life within a biblical framework. The character of our God. The character of our God. And His covenant faithfulness. That's what gives us hope as we go forward. He's a covenant-keeping God. He will work from generation to generation. That's our hope for GCA. It's our hope for our church. It's our hope for all the church ministries that will begin again in a a few weeks. The catechism classes, family visitation, choir, choir. Sunday school ministry, confession of faith, family living class, various Bible study classes, and so on. This morning, we want to dedicate all of these things, all of these new beginnings to God and dedicate ourselves to these causes. Looking to the covenant-keeping God to help us as we go forward. It's one thing to have a new beginning. It's another thing to have a blessed continuation. So many people like new beginnings. But the real test comes in persevering in the continuation. The new beginning of the New Testament church And Pentecost was wonderful. They spoke with other tongues. It was exciting. It was overwhelming. But just as great as Acts 2.4 is Acts 2.42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and breaking of bread and prayers. You see, you and I need to continue We look to the covenant-keeping God 
We heard and we saw in our mind the Ebenezer stone set up last Tuesday night. Reflecting the past, the present, and the future. And it was beautiful. But now we've got to walk out of it. Now we've got to continue in it. Dedicating ourselves by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Entirely to our dedicatory God. With godly zeal. With a white-hot flame, as the Puritans used to put it. That is, pledging allegiance to God and to His cause and to His grace. In the face of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this morning, I want to look with you at how to do that by the grace of God from Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. I'll read it again. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. So our theme then this morning, dedication to our awesome God. First, or to our awesome Lord. First, as God. Second, as faithful. Third, as covenant keeper. And fourth, as allegiance commander. Dedication to our awesome Lord as God, as faithful, as covenant keeper, as allegiance commander. If you had visited Egypt in the second millennium before Christ, you probably wouldn't have paid any attention to the Hebrews. They were little more than a ragtag band of slaves. You certainly would have found it hard to believe that just a few years later, you would see them leaving Egypt triumphantly with heaps of gold and silver. The people of Israel were not free to decide their own future. They were at the mercy of the Egyptians. You might have seen them doing hard labor in impossible conditions being used to build massive cities for the Egyptians, but doomed to perpetual slavery. Now it's true that you might have heard a few Egyptians whispering that they're getting kind of worried about how those Hebrews are multiplying and growing as a nation, and worried, perhaps, that there were getting to be too many of them. But you also would have heard the bad news that the Egyptians were killing their male children, adding to the already great suffering of this pitiful people. And what you might not have known, at least not with your physical eyes, as you stood there watching these slaves, was that it was precisely this hopeless group of men and women whom God purposed to save And be the most important nation on the face of the earth. He's about to send them an unlikely, shy, but great leader in Moses. And to demonstrate his own awesome power in a series of incredible plagues. Which would bring the great nation of Egypt to its knees. 
He's about to spread the waters of the Red Sea and let his people pass through and use the same water to rain down on the pursuing Egyptian army to destroy them. This God is an awesome God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who can do great wonders, the God of ages past and years to come. And then, this God would reveal to you why He chose to do all this for these people, these unworthy people. In our text, know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God. He does these wonderful things because He is God. He is the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. So our text this morning tells us that when we are in that covenant line of this amazing God, we are to remember four things. We are to dedicate ourselves to four truths. Four truths that are to be our strength as we go forward. Four truths that are strong in our past, strong in our present, but must remain strong in our future. And they're laid out for us one by one, analytically, in our text. The first one is this. We are to know that the Lord is God. And the word Lord there is the covenant-keeping name, the Yahweh name, the special name of God. The name that God uses when He says, you shall not take this name in vain. This supreme name of God. The I am that I am. The I am has sent me to you, said Moses to the people. And there's no good way to translate it. It's a, it's a name above all names. You, you might translate, translate it this way. The eternal I am. God is the one who was that, what he was, who is what he is, and who shall be what he shall be. But even those three different tenses are anthropomorphic. We use them because we live in past, present, future. But for God, you see, he is the, just the eternal present I am. He is above time. He's above our world. He's, he's, he's God alone. He's the almighty, omnipotent, merciful, sovereign, glorious God. So different than any other God. In fact, there is no other God. You see, Christians are monotheists. Mono meaning one. Theists meaning God. We're believers in one God. So different from So many nations around us. And so it was in Israel's time even more. Every little nation had their own God. And sometimes within little areas of their nation it was another God. And many of them had many gods. They were polytheists. But God comes and says, If you're going to live rightly in relationship to me, know that I am the Lord, the only Lord, the covenant-keeping Lord of heaven and earth, the eternal I am. Now, the people of Israel should have known this very well. God had proven that He is the Lord in their great deliverance from Egypt. 
in the plagues. Who else but God could have parted the Red Sea? Who else but God could have the manna fall from heaven? The bread. It's only the Lord, Yahweh, the I am that I am, the Almighty. And He it is who promised the land of Canaan to their fathers. But now instead of that, you see, they had found themselves stuck in Egypt. Hadn't God promised the whole land of Canaan to Abraham and to his children? But they're slaves in a foreign nation. Hadn't he promised that there would be a great seed to Abraham? And now the Egyptians are killing their male babies. It seemed, no doubt, to them before they're delivered that, that, that God's promises were in vain. That the opposite was happening. How can the Lord be who He said He is? How can we know the Lord is God when we look around and it seems like He is not God? And if He is Lord, why is all this happening? Don't you think that in those 400 years Israel was in Egypt? That many a time they struggled with this issue? I think so. They were like Gideon. Remember when Gideon's down in, the, in, in a little pit trying to make some bread so that the enemy wouldn't see him? And an angel comes to visit him and says, I am the Lord your God, using the Yahweh name. You remember Gideon's response? Oh my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? Have you been there in your life too? When things crashed in on you from all sides? If God is Lord, why this? Why this mystery? Have you had times where you talk like this? I know I'm a sinner, but I'm trying to serve the Lord. and I I, I don't think I'm backsliding. I'm earnest and seeking His face. And yet all these things seem to be against me one after another. One trial heaped upon another trial. Oh Lord, art thou God? Show me. That thou art the Lord, you see. Oh, the struggle, the struggle, even in the believer, to say the very first foundational concept of dedication, dedication to the Lord, is to be able to say, the Lord, He is God. No matter what happens to me. Well, if they had eyes to see it, They still could have seen it. But we tend to, don't we, like Israel, we tend to be overwhelmed to the things that are happening in the little circle of our own influence. We tend to be overwhelmed by what's happening to us, to our body, to our circumstances, to our immediate family. And we forget often that God is proving to the entire world That He is the living God over all other gods. You see, that's what God's doing. And that's what He takes Israel through. He wants to show that to them. First of all, it's not just about every 
individual little nuclear family. But it's all about him proving that he is God over the nations. His glory reigns supreme. And so there is none beside him. That's what God sets out to prove over and over and over again in history. Even today. The humiliation, the incredible humiliation of this nation in recent weeks is a testimony that God is saying also to our country, I am Lord. You forsake me. You banish me from the classroom. You banish me from the sacredness of life. You banish me from my order in society with male and female and marriage and all of that. You banish me from esteeming people and treating all people equal and embrace things like critical race theory that is racism to the core. You banish me and my biblical views of man and God and work and everything that is going down the tubes away from God on the slippery slope we're going. And I will show you who is Lord. I will humble you. That's what God is doing to us. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God. And so God comes. And He asserts His own Godhead, doesn't He? He proves that not Pharaoh. Pharaoh was God in the eyes of the Egyptians. Not Pharaoh. The Pharaoh God is no God. But I am God. That's what God is doing in the plagues. That's what God is showing the entire world. You see, the Nile, the Nile was absolutely essential for life in Egypt in ancient times. The people there dependent on its yearly flooding to make their fields suitable for farming. If it did not flood, they would suffer terribly. Many would starve. Because their whole society, economy, was built around this river. And because this river was the source of their wealth, and the reason they had established themselves as a great civilization, they worshipped, supposedly, the God who controlled the Nile. So what was the first plague? The first plague was, God turned the Nile River into a river of blood. Who's God? The God of the Nile or the God of Israel? Then the Egyptians who worshipped their pharaohs as gods, as I said, in the last plague, God sent the angel of death to kill all the firstborn, including the firstborn son of Pharaoh. In Hosea 11, God refers to the nation of Israel as his son. So the Lord killed the son of the Egyptian God and rescued his own son, Israel, from the grasp of the Egyptians. Could there be a clearer demonstration of God saying, Know therefore that I am God and not Pharaoh. So Israel's to know that. And the word know here is an intimate term. Israel's to know it intimately. They're to know God intimately. 
They're not just to know it up here in their heads. They're to know it in the depths of their soul. It's not the kind of knowledge that tells you that one plus one equals two. It's the kind of knowledge between a husband and a wife. It's the kind of knowledge between a believer and his God. It's a deep knowledge. It's a personal knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge. It's a knowledge of mutual dedication to one another. You see, we, from a distance, we can look at we can look at the Exodus narrative rather dispassionately. But the Israelites were living in it. They were called to know this personal, experiential God in a personal way. Not just as another God who did great things, but as a God who delivered them. They walked through the Red Sea. They saw the Egyptians drown. It was an experiential scene of the greatness and glory of God. And the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing about the whole book of Exodus is that the entire book is structured around three things. Misery, man's misery, deliverance, and then gratitude. Dr. Barrett just recently wrote a book on Exodus, and that actually was his subtitle. The pattern in Exodus is misery, deliverance, gratitude. This is the experiential order in which God saves a sinner as well. The whole book of Exodus is a picture of how God saves a sinner, really. Showing us that we are slaves to sin. Delivering us through Jesus Christ, through His blood. And calling upon us to be dedicated to Him out of gratitude for so great salvation. And so, you and I, as we begin with a new school, as we begin our church activities again, as we begin to worship the Lord in a variety of settings now, we need to see this almighty power. We need to know this God in the midst of all these new beginnings. God has brought us through tough ways this summer. For 113 years, He gave us our own Christian school. And then a sad trail of events led us to a crisis point where we couldn't go on as we had been. And so to establish a new school and be ready to open its doors this past week seemed daunting, even overwhelming. seemed in a way like (laughs) the Red Sea opening in front of us. How could it open? We're trapped in on all sides. We can't get ready on time, and yet we must. Oh, Lord, help us. But God brought us through. He brought us from sorrow to joy. He moved us to tears of sorrow a few months ago. And then tears of joy last Tuesday evening. Hitherto, Ebenezer, hitherto, hast thou helped us. God has been our Lord. God has done wonders. And now the God of education of our children in the past is the same God, the same Yahweh, the same I am that I am in the present, in the new school to go before us. And we expect great things from Him in the future. Awesome is the Lord our God. Let us now dedicate ourselves back to that dedicated school, back to the Lord who's worthy of our dedication and do what our hands find to do And do what our knees find to do as we cry out to God for benediction upon all that He has given to us. All this because the Lord 
He is the God. But secondly, we dedicate ourselves in these, in this dedicatory week to God because He is faithful. This is particularly picked out in our text, isn't it? Because He is faithful. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God. He's the strong father of Israel. He's made promises to those forefathers. He cannot turn back from his own promises. You know the word faithful here is a very interesting word. I, 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 in, in the scholarly biblical dictionary, it defines it as being firm in fidelity, allegiance to a person. God is pledging allegiance to his own, to his covenant faithfulness, to his own character. But then it also says this, the basic root idea of this word is firmness or certainty. It expresses in the tense in which it is used here, the basic concept of support and is used in the sense of the strong arms of a parent supporting a helpless infant. I love those words. This is what God does for His covenant people. Apart from Him, we're helpless infants. But He comes with His strong arms, His covenantal arms, and He takes us up, and He carries us forward, and He does for us in Christ Jesus what we cannot do for ourselves because He is a faithful God. So all reasons for God and His covenant faithfulness, all reasons for Him showing His kindness and mercy, His, His hesed, His loving kindness to us, they're all in God. There's nothing in us. Verse 7 makes that clear already, just before our text. The Lord did not set His love upon you, nor chose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. They're one of the smallest nations. And was it because they were better than others? No, we know that wasn't the case. They were sinners. And the whole Old Testament teaches us that when left to themselves, they would go back to idol worship. They would leave the living God, the almighty, real Yahweh, the I am that I am, for gods of wood and stone. Their foolishness, their spiritual insanity is overwhelming sometimes. Sometimes you get angry at the Israelites when you read the the Old Testament, don't you? How they treat their God. Until the Lord shows you how you treat God. And that every sin we commit, we are actually saying in the act of commission that we believe God is not. Every sin is really an act of practical atheism. We're no different, my dear church family. There's no hope in us, but all our hope is in God. All our hope is in God. Verse 8, but because the Lord loved you. That's it. That's, that's all. Because He loved you, and because He would keep the oath which He had sworn unto your fathers, out of that love, had the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
And so as a response to this amazing mercy from an awesome God, the Israelites were to praise God for His goodness toward them. They were to dedicate themselves to sell themselves out to this God. They were to marvel at His character. They were to exalt His faithfulness. A God who would remain faithful despite their unfaithfulness is a God whose love defies our comprehension. Now we've already seen the predicament the Jews found themselves in. They had been promised Canaan, but they got Egypt. They had been promised blessing, but they got slavery. They had been promised seed, but they got murdered babies. From their perspective, you see, yes, human flesh will doubt the power and the character of God. Some would say, no doubt, God's not strong enough to fulfill His promises, or He's not fatherly enough, or He doesn't care enough. But you see, they were on their timetable, not God's. And then when the exodus happens, and when the manna falls, and the wonders of the Most High manifest themselves, you see, then Israel can say, God has fulfilled His promises. God has done everything and more of what He said. God is faithful. My dear friend, God is faithful in your life, whether you're five years old, whether you're 95 years old. He's never made one mistake. And when you're in tough times, you might ask, where is God? But He's there. He's there molding you. He's there training you. He's showing you your own misery, your own need. He's making you dependent on Him for deliverance. He's drawing you with His covenantal love his bonds of love to himself. He's teaching you. I am faithful. I'm faithful when you're in the tunnel of adversity. I'm faithful when you are at the heights of prosperity. I am your God. And therefore, I am faithful. I cannot be God without being faithful. To be unfaithful in God would be to ungod God. The Egyptians have been totally crushed by God's faithful hand. How then were the faithless Israelites ever going to last in the presence of such a faithful God? How could they live near such earth-shaking power and not be consumed themselves, being great sinners? Well, the answer lies in the faithfulness of God through Jesus Christ, the Messiah to come. The Exodus, you see, demonstrated not only that God was powerful, but that He was faithful as well. He will stand by His promises. He will do what He has said. He made a covenant and He will keep it. That's how I see GCA. Coming out of the ashes of trial. God says... I'll bring you through. I'll bring you forward. I will ultimately fulfill my own promises. I know there's been a lot of people working hard, getting the school ready for this fall, for this week. And they've done a marvelous job. They were tools in God's hands. And we owe them gratitude, every one of them. 
But you see, ultimately, as Calvin put it, behind all secondary causes, there's a primary cause. And the primary cause is God. And the beauty, the beauty of all these hands coming together to do this work is that God orchestrated it behind the earthly organizers. And we need to acknowledge that this morning. Without God, this wouldn't have happened. God was bringing us through this particular Red Sea in this particular church. And we are grateful. And we need to thank Him. And we need to, we need to see the wonder of what He's done this summer so that we just give Him all the praise all the more. It would be the greatest insult to God if we refuse to acknowledge that it is He and not us who has brought this school into existence. We, we, we confess that too often we depend upon ourselves as if everything depends upon ourselves. And we behave as if God has little to do with the progress that we achieve in our daily lives. But when God shows us who we are, when God shows us our weakness, when God shows us that we can't move a finger or, 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 or blink an eye without Him, then we understand, especially in times of trial, it is all God. Know that the Lord is God, the faithful God. Oh, the faithfulness of God. It's one of the most precious doctrines in the Bible. We are so sinful, we're so undeserving. Left to ourselves, we would remain in bondage to our own sin and our punishment due for it. But God, but God, in His mercy, you see, has redeemed us, many of us, just as He redeemed the ancient Israelites. And He brings us out of bondage, and He delivers us, and He goes before us, and we follow Him. This is the God, the faithful God whom we serve, the God who says, I have promised, I am faithful, I will do it. And so here we stand at the beginning of the school year. And the triangle that God uses to bless our children is all in place. It's amazing. The church is still here. The home is still here. And the school is still here. And this covenant-keeping God says, in my faithfulness, I will use that triangle to continue to keep covenant with you. Soli Deo Gloria to this faithful God. So God calls us this morning to dedicate ourselves to our awesome Lord, ourselves and our children, as God, as faithful, but also thirdly, as covenant keeper. Listen to our text. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love Him, and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. There's three things we need to, we need to stress here. The first is, we must not underestimate God's gracious covenant. The Lord thy God. God says that actually to the whole church. There's a sense in which all church members are in an external covenant with God. 
And of course, his people are only in an internal covenant with God. You know, you know that well. But it's easy to underestimate, you see, this covenant, as, as many of our dear friends, Baptist friends do, and, and some Reformed people as well, where you reduce the covenant to insignificance unless you're born again. And Christians do that by failing to recognize the importance of the covenantal relationship of children with God. From the New Testament era on, they believe, children of believers have no promise extended to them. And so by implication, they've lost their special place of belonging to the covenant of Jehovah that they had in the Old Testament. But surely, surely that's not the teaching of the New Testament. If God said in Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant between thee and Thy children, thy seed after thee, inner generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And then in the richer covenant of the New Testament would say, now I've got no place for children in that covenant until they're born again. Or to put it another way, if, if baptism does not replace circumcision, the bloody sign, which no longer can continue in the New Testament because the, the blood has been shed once for all by Christ, Hebrews 10.14. Of course baptism is the replacement sacrament. And the New Testament makes it plain. 1 Corinthians 7.14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else we are children unclean, but now they are Holy. The word holy there means now they are set apart. They're set apart from the, the children of the world. So God sovereignly, graciously establishes a redemptive relationship with the believers and promises in the covenant that He will also redeem from among their seed a people for Himself. And even now in infancy, He sets them apart and calls them to seek His face. So practically, Christian parents of the New Testament church who care deeply about their children would have clamored for clarity of the covenantal position of their children had God really intended them to have no promise, no sacramental sign and seal, no rightful place among His people. But it's not only the Baptists that do that. It's also some Reformed churches they actually reduce, they, they go ahead and baptize the babies, but they reduce the sacrament to mere form and custom without insisting on what it should mean for the lives both of the parents and their baptized children. And so in such circles, you see, the church has no eye for the promises of God in baptism, no expectation for children to be saved, no heart for pleading these promises in prayer, no clear understanding of how God earnestly calls covenant children to a lifestyle consecrated to Himself and separated from the world. No, no, no. God is a covenant keeping God, even the external covenant relationship with Him that children have when, they're, when, they, when they grow up in the church 
is important. It's critical. Not that you say to your children, oh, you're, you're all saved because you're covenant children. Just the opposite. You say, children, God's a faithful covenant-keeping God. He's baptized you. He's willing to be your God. But you must be saved. You must cry out to Him for it, for a new heart. And you must know what it means to truly repent and believe. You must be converted. But you have every encouragement that the God of the covenant will work from generation to generation. He will take the seed. He promises it of the generation to come. That's how he builds his church. And you are the, you are the privileged, you are privileged children to be in that line, to have his name upon your forehead. Sealed that God is willing to be your God. Now you plead upon that and you go to him and you rest in him. We underestimate God's covenant when we don't say these kinds of things to our children. The second thought here is, on the other hand, we don't want to exaggerate, we don't want to exaggerate God's covenant. That too is a huge problem, perhaps a greater problem today, where people say, oh well, our, our children are born again because they're, they're covenant children. Everything, everything is well. You don't have to be born again, child. You're, you're brought up in the covenant. And they bring six-month-olds to the Lord's Supper as if they can ascertain that they're saved and discern their faith. This is nonsense. Presumptive regeneration is a dangerous doctrine that deceives young children and teaches them for life that they're saved when they never have known what it means to be saved. That's why our forefathers demanded what we call experiential Christianity. That we experience the doctrines of grace. We need to experience that we are lost in sin. And that we need, desperately need to be saved. We need to experience what it means to be drawn to Jesus Christ and cast our all upon Him by the grace of the Holy Spirit. We need to experience what it means to have my life surrendered to God so that I have a new Master, a new Lord, and, and I want my life... To, Despite all my shortcomings, I want my life to be lived entirely to Him. Thou knowest all things, Lord. Despite all my shortcomings, we need to be able to say that. I do love Thee. William Young wrote this in an article, Doctrinal knowledge and ethical conduct, according to the Word of God, are sufficient for the Christian life without any specific religious experience of conviction of sin or conversion or any need for self-examination as to the possession of distinguishing marks of saving grace among those who embrace presumptive regeneration. Imagine all your lifetime resting in presumptive regeneration and coming before the Lord on the great day and saying, Lord, I went to church all my life. I did this all my life. I did that all my life. But the Lord will say, I never knew you. You never became a lost sinner before me. You never fled to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. You never surrendered yourself in gratitude to me. Children, you need to experience these things. You need to know your sinfulness. You need to flee to Jesus Christ alone. You need to know a life of sanctification and gratitude to God. But your covenant-keeping God can give you that life. He can work that life 
in you. He's almighty. He can do it. And he's even indicated he, he's willing to do it. That's why he baptized you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So we don't exaggerate this covenant. We don't allow this covenant to swallow up the need for regeneration. No. You must, I must be born again. Our children must be directed to Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation again and again and again. As our baptism form says, we are to teach them to loathe and humble ourselves before God and seek for our purification and salvation outside of ourselves, that is, in Jesus Christ. Or as the Heidelberg Catechism says, is then the external baptism of the water, the washing away of sin itself. Not at all. For the blood of Jesus Christ only and the Holy Ghost can cleanse us from all sin. But you see, this does teach us that Jesus Christ is able and willing to be the Redeemer and the everlasting Father of our precious children. Our children are Christ's covenant seed. They are called the heritage of the Lord. They belong to Him. He has a claim upon them. That's why in the moral law, He says, Of all Israel, I am the Lord thy God. But it's one thing to be God is our God externally in a covenant relationship. It's another thing to be transferred by the Holy Spirit into the internal essence of that covenant and to be born again and to have the saving benefits of that covenant. You see, that's what we need. But that's God's ordinary way of working. And that's the encouragement. God ordinarily works savingly among His covenant seed. That's why we have expectation in GCA that God will do great things through that school. That's why we have expectation when we go on family visitation. That's why we have expectation when we teach catechism classes. That's why we have expectation when we get on this pulpit and preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Because Yahweh, the Lord your God, is a covenant-keeping God who keeps covenant to a thousand generations, our text says. And then thirdly, we must not only under we must not underestimate God's covenant. Secondly, we must not exaggerate God's covenant. But we must number three understand the heart of God's covenant, which is God Himself as a God of mercy, a God of mercy. Notice, notice what the text says. Know therefore that the Lord thy God He is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy. Mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. You see, He picks out mercy of all the attributes to accent when He expresses His covenant. God is a merciful God. He recognizes our pitiful condition, our need. He provides a solution to it Himself by giving His Son for our salvation in His passive and active obedience. And then He gives us the faith we need to believe in that Son. He's a God of mercy on every hand, on the side of Christ and on our own side. Mercy means compassion upon those who are needy and miserable. This is who God is. He delights 
in mercy. And so how are we to respond to all of that? Well, that's my final thought. Our God commands allegiance. He says, mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Not legalistically keeping His commandments, but lovingly love Him and keep His commandments. It's the fruit of being saved when by faith you and repentance you may cast your all upon Christ alone for salvation. You are saved. But faith is never remains alone. Faith will be coupled with love. We will then love this God. That's, that, that's a mark that the faith is true. And when we love this God, we want to run in the way of His commandments. We want to obey Him. We want to serve Him. Notice how the next two verses go on to say, And repayeth them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him, but he will repay him to his face. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and statutes and judgments which I command thee this day to do them. It's so important to know that the Lord is God. It's so important to know that He's faithful. It's so important to know that He's a covenant keeper. It's so important to know that He's merciful. But it's also so important to know that we need to dedicate, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, our entire selves to Him. He commands allegiance. He says, pledge allegiance to Me, for I am the Lord your God. You see, that's why God was angry when Egypt, when, when Israel was delivered out of Egypt, when they came across the Red Sea and they sang the song of Miriam and the Lamb, of Moses and the Lamb. And they went further in the wilderness and then they started to murmur in the face of this great deliverer, this great covenant keeping God. God was angry. God chastised them in some severe ways. So God commands us to pledge allegiance to Him now. So when we look at GCA, we don't say, well, look look what our hands have done. Look what our minds have done. And now we settle on our lees. No, no, no. We look at GCA and we say, this is God's hand. This is God's work. This is God's mercy. Now He commands us to pledge allegiance. Now He commands us to roll up our sleeves and keep working again for the welfare of our children and our young people, the rising covenant generation. We have to keep His commandments. We have to continue to do the work of the Lord. We have to be faithful to a thousand generations, for He has promised He is a God of a thousand generations. So we respond to Him. He says, Thou shalt, and we say, I will by the grace of the Holy Spirit. So let me just give you a few thoughts by way of conclusion, what that means for us practically. Number one, let's use the faithfulness of our awesome God to end in Him for all the benefits He has bestowed upon us. So as we commemorate what God has done for us in the school, yes, but in the church and in our homes and under all the means of grace we have, And as we anticipate 
what He's going to do in this future year under the means of grace, also in this church, as well as the school. Let us end in God with appreciation for who He is and what He does. And let us turn to Him for confirmation of the rich heritage He has granted us. And let us end in Him with confession, asking Him to wash away all our sins, past, present, and future. And then let us turn to Him with supplication, begging Him to revive us through divine power and grace and grant genuine conversions and growth in grace. And then let us turn to Him in dedication, pledging our allegiance afresh to Him. And bow in celebration saying with the psalmist, Thou art, O God, our boast, the glory of our power. Thy sovereign grace is heir, our fortress, and our tower. So let us respond, you see, with appreciation, confirmation, confession, supplication, dedication, celebration to a thousand generations. Secondly, let's use the faithfulness of our awesome God to make our school even better. Let's marinate that school in prayer. Let us pray for more and more Christ-centeredness. Let us pray for our God-fearing teachers. Let us have passion for the souls of our students. Let us use God's faithfulness to inspire volunteer work. Let us support the school not just with our financial giving, but also with our volunteer efforts, our our fund drives, our, our prayers. Let us marinate it all in prayer. And number three, let us use, if we're going to be pledge allegiance to our faithful, awesome God, let us use His faithfulness to plead His benediction upon all our church activities, all our ministries. Let each one of them be owned of God. When you see them listed in the bulletin every week, would you take your bulletin home with you? Would you pray not only for the people on the list who are sick, but would you also go higher on the list and pray for each meeting that God would be in the midst, that God's covenant mercies would, 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 would be exalted in every one of those meetings, and especially on the Lord's Day worship services. And number four, Let us use this awesome God to pledge allegiance of our entire selves, our entire being, to pledge allegiance to Him and to His commandments. Like a flag that we would say, I pledge allegiance to my God. I want to run in the way of Thy commandments. I want to obey Thee. I want to fear the Lord with my heart, my soul, in all strength. And finally, let's use the faithful, number five, let's use the faithfulness of our awesome God to raise our level of expectation in a covenant-keeping God, to plead for the conversions of our children, yes, but also to expect them because He's a God who delights in mercy, because He's a God who does great things. Covenant theology does not replace the need for personal regeneration. But it does raise the expectation that our God will do a great work in His covenant seed. And so we expect Him to work. And we plead His promises even to a thousand generations. Amen.
Gracious God, we ask thy benediction upon this sermon. May we dedicate ourselves, our, our, our new school, our church activities coming up, our entire church, our entire families, uh, home, church, and school, the entire triangle, as well as ourselves, soul and body, unto Thee. May we pledge allegiance to run in the way of Thy gospel and to run in the way of all Thy commandments, trusting in Thee, trusting in Thy mercy, trusting in Thee as the great I Am, the faithful, covenant-keeping God. Lord, Thou art awesome, and we are sinners. We can't understand why Thou wouldst have dealings with us, but it's because of Thy own awesome character that it is so. And so we bow under this great, wonderful, over-the-top truth that Thou art a God of mercy, and we cast ourselves upon it. Lord, have mercy upon us and upon our children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.